This is an attempted invasion of our country. Period. Oh, shut up. These people. I swear to God. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also, up in California uh, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountain on KKRN and in Eureka on AM 1480 KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Groves, KSO, KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids WPRR in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Thanks to all of our fine affiliates, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Uh, well, Desi Doyen, what is it that I always say, see if you're paying attention, what is it that I always say about elections on the day after when uh, when we're reporting on results for those elections? Well, you always say that any problems or issues uh, don't often show up until weeks or months later. You're correct. That's okay, right. Good. It does. <laughs> Thank you for paying attention. It does often take days or weeks or, yes, months for problems and concerns to emerge. Well, here we are almost one month since midterm election day and the results are still being hammered out. Problems and concerns about results and potential fraud are just now emerging in some cases, and we still have some runoff elections coming up, which are also causing problems for many voters on uh, on Tuesday of uh, the upcoming week. We will get to some of that momentarily, including updates on what appears to be a GOP election fraud investigation now in the great state of North Carolina, where the GOP-controlled legislature has been pretending that Democrats have been committing fraud for years. But as ever, it appears that they like to accuse Democrats of what they themselves are actually doing. Surprise! Also, a bit later, we'll take a look at how your local media, your local news outlet, now controlled by far-right Trump-supporting corporations like Sinclair Broadcast Group, are insidiously implanting GOP right-wing nationalist propaganda onto your local nightly news. We'll be joined by Pam Vogel of Media Matters to discuss the latest 
skirmish over last weekend's border skirmish in San Diego, where U.S. troops were deployed in advance of the November 6 midterm elections by Donald Trump and where tear gas was fired into Mexico, sending uh, families, uh, including women and children, fleeing for their lives. How that was covered on some of those local stations the day after. Curiously enough, none of those invading hordes, as the right wing has uh, characterized them, uh, were actually charged with anything over the weekend after that um, tear gas was fired and people were arrested. And despite all of the panicked news coverage you likely saw about it, we will talk about that in a bit as well. But once again, we begin with our ongoing, apparently never-ending coverage of the midterm elections today with several stories underscoring why we try to emphasize on this program that everyone's right to vote and to have that vote counted accurately and in a way they can know that it has been counted accurately, why that matters. And yes, why every single vote really does matter. Got uh, several stories that underscore that uh, to lead off here today. Let me start with uh, Kentucky, where Mary Beverly Getz is 76 years old. She uses a walker. She recently had surgery to remove a cancerous tumor. She was worried that her health issues would prevent her from voting for Democrat Jim Glenn in her western Kentucky State House district. So she requested an absentee ballot by mail and sent it in weeks ahead of the elections to make sure that her vote was counted. The Democrat Glenn in this race reportedly won this contest in the lucky 13th State House District in Kentucky by one single vote. Wow. Yep. Thanks, Ms. Getz. It was apparently her vote. Getz said, it made me feel good. It made me feel like your vote really counted. (laughs) I'm sure there's a lot of folks in that district who feel that way today. Glenn's victory in Owensboro, Kentucky, was one of six state house races in in the in the state decided by a handful of votes in District 27. Democrat Jeff Greer lost to Republican Nancy Tate by six votes in District 96. Republican Jill York lost to the Democrat Kathy Hinkle by five votes. In District 91, Republican Toby Harold lost to Democrat Cluster Howard by seven votes. This was all in Kentucky. And in Buckhorn, Kentucky, a coin flip allowed alcohol to be sold at a state park after an election there ended in a tie. That was at least the third time this year that a coin flip had decided uh, a tied race in Kentucky. Wow. But so all of the, those uh, state house races have now been certified by the uh, they were certified by the county board of elections a week or two ago, after a review of results not not necessarily a count but a review of results from the voting machines did not change any of the outcomes. A number of uh, counties in Kentucky, however, still use 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. So I'm not sure what they reviewed at all on those systems. There's nothing really to review. In the race in western Kentucky, however, in the lucky 13th uh, House District, decided by one vote, they do use hand-marked paper ballots. That is a good thing, because today, 
Incumbent Republican state lawmaker D.J. Johnson, who is said to have lost that uh, race by just one single vote on November 6, he's now challenging the results. So county officials reviewed the totals. They made no changes. And then the state board of elections this week certified all of the results, declaring the Democrat Jim Glenn the winner by a single vote. Clearly the one cast by 76-year-old Mary Beverly Getz. It makes a difference uh, yes, in these state lo- in these state legislator uh, state assemblies. It makes a huge difference who the representatives are, because of course, as we've been talking about for quite a while, they are the ones that draw the lines for your congressional district. Oh yeah, there's that. Uh, nonetheless, uh, in the 13th district, state law allows Johnson to contest the election. Uh, which he now says he will do in that 13th district race. The uh, state House of Representatives would appoint a commission of between five and nine members in such cases. The commission would then report to the full House of Representatives, which would decide the matter. Johnson said it is his responsibility to make sure the vote totals are 100 percent accurate. And I agree The Democrat Glenn said he's confident that the election results will stand. We will see. The legislature is not scheduled to reconvene until January, however. The GOP would have a 61-seat supermajority as it is if the results stand, if the Democrat is allowed uh, to take his seat in the 13th district. In that case, Democrats will have just 39 seats. Republicans won a supermajority back in 2016 for the first time in nearly 100 years, making Kentucky, uh, the Kentucky House, the last legislative chamber in the South to flip to GOP control. No matter what happens here, it will stay in GOP control for at least two more years uh, in Kentucky. But one single vote may even be more important in the great state of Alaska. Now, before I get to the uh, great one-vote election mystery in Alaska today, I should note that on Friday, two back-to-back earthquakes measuring uh, 7.0 and 5.7 shattered highways and rocked buildings in Anchorage, according to AP, sending people running into the streets and um, briefly triggering a warning to residents in Kodiak to flee to higher ground for fear of a tsunami. That warning was lifted shortly later. Um, Happily, there were no immediate reports of deaths or serious injuries. The U.S. Geological Survey said the first and more powerful quake was centered about seven miles north of Anchorage, which is Alaska's largest city with a population of about 300,000. People were running from their offices. They took cover under their desks. They have a lot of uh, uh, earthquakes up in Alaska, but this was a big one. Yes, this was very big. Uh, Governor Bill Walker has already issued a disaster declaration. And, you know, you mentioned the extensive damage to the infrastructure. Roads and bridges are out. I mean, you can go up on, you can look up the images of these impassable roads, specifically the main road from Anchorage to Wasilla, Alaska, is destroyed. Uh, There's no way anyone can pass through it. Um, There's also concerns because electricity is out. They don't know the extent of it quite yet. And there may be broken natural gas mains that also bring heating to Alaska, where it is now dark and winter. And it's uh, very important that they figure out quickly how to keep people warm and pick up kids who were at school when this yeah. happened. 
Yeah, uh, it was, if you look at some of these photos, especially of the roads, uh, Glen Highway, is that the, I don't know, not I sure believe if that's, that's the one. The same yeah. one yes. That's uh, the scenic route, uh, AP says it runs past farms, mountains, and glaciers. It has, quote, completely disappeared, according to the police chief up in Anchorage. Uh, all flights in and out of the airport were suspended. Phone service was knocked out. The 800-mile Alaska oil pipeline. I'm surprised you didn't put that at the top of your list here, Des. That was shut down while crews have been sent to inspect it for damage. Keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, right? But again, the good news, uh, while there is apparently quite a bit of damage, no reported major injuries. Also, apparently good news for former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, who tweeted that her home was damaged. She said her family is intact, but the house is not. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, we'll be keeping our eyes on there. Uh, But again, good news is that folks seem to be shaken, but okay for now. They did go back after inside after running out of their offices after the first quake. And then just about five minutes later, they had this 5.7 aftershock, which sent them running back out onto the streets, apparently. Uh, Those quakes on Friday have obviously distracted folks from what had been the biggest story of the day up in Alaska and probably will be again, at least once uh, some of the rubble is cleared. Control of the Alaska state government, for the next two years at least, now seems to hinge on a mystery ballot that an election worker found on a table in a Fairbanks voting precinct more than three weeks ago. The uncounted ballot could break a tie in an Alaska State House race in House District 1, and a decision on whether to count that was expected on Friday. Now, as we go to air, I've not been able to get an update on this uh, today. Uh, And I don't know if it's because the earthquakes have delayed a planned recount in Juneau today. The elections office has said that the uh, the one still uncounted ballot in question appeared to be marked for the Democrat in this race, Democrat Catherine Dodge. But it's more it's bigger than just this one House district race. If the Republican Bart Laban, if he ends up winning, the uh, the GOP would control the state house, the, the House, the Senate and the governor's office. However, if the Democrat Dodge ends up winning, it would set off a uh, dash between the parties to build a caucus of at least 21 members needed for a majority in the House. In other words, the Democrats could control the House all based on this one ballot in this race that is currently tied, exactly tied. Officials said that the ballot in question was found by an election worker on a precinct table on Election Day in a gray secrecy sleeve. It was not counted at the time, and it was included among the materials that were sent back to Juno. Uh, and arrived last Friday for an election review. Officials were investigating the ballot before deciding whether to count it or not. Dodge, the Democrat, is uh, currently certified as being tied with Laban with 2,661 votes apiece as they headed into what was supposed to be a scheduled recount on Friday. Dodge attorney, Dodge's attorney, Patrick Munson, in a letter 
to the elections director in Alaska, uh, Josie Bunke, uh, said that Alaska law sets a high threshold for disqualifying a ballot. He said there were 366 ballots issued at the precinct on Election Day. That much they know. However, just 365 were tallied through the optical scanner there. He said it's likely that this ballot this ballot was valid, validly issued and voted and should be counted for Dodge, which would give her the victory in House District 1 and give Democrats likely control of the state house. So only the entire control of the entire state of Alaska, really, at this point, hinges on one single ballot, one single vote. Now, there is kind of amazing. There yeah. is another ballot in question that Dodge's attorney would also like to see included in the tally. That would be a ballot with uh, the ovals marked for both her, both the Democrat and the Republican. But it has an X over the Republican's oval next to LeBon's name. Uh, that ballot was not counted for either candidate. It was regarded as an overvote. In some states, that would be uh, that X would clearly show the intent of the voter, presuming we the uh, chain of custody for these ballots, that there's no question about that. So they're trying to get that one counted as well. But uh, this has been a three week roller coaster since uh, midterm election day as the lead has changed in this race and finally ended up as a complete tie, except for this one vote hanging in the balance. Yep. And the uh, state elections director there, Bonke, says she wants to ensure that every vote cast by an eligible voter is counted. The plan was to see how the recount came out. And if it was tied again, then they were going to consider, I guess, what to do about that one vote. And, of course, there are likely to be legal challenges. State law calls for a winner to be determined by lot if uh, if, if if there's ultimately a tie after all of the challenges and counts. A coin toss decided a tied race in 2006. Now a coin toss could determine control of the entire state house. My goodness. As long as there's not an earthquake or anything going on yeah, right? at the same time. A similar like, situation, you'll recall, we covered uh, last year on this show in the Virginia State House of Representatives, where Democrats won a bunch of races in a blue wave there, but fell one vote, really one vote shy of a majority, ultimately. Uh, one race was tied and a piece of paper was drawn out of a bowl and the Republican ended up winning. But the Republicans achieved that tie after one of the Republican recount judges actually changed his mind about one of the ballots that had been initially uh, seen as an overvote unanimously and it was not counted. And then the results ended up with the Democrat winning by one vote. So the Republican judge changed his mind about that overvote overvote that made it a tie. And then the winner was drawn by Lott, who, lucky for the GOP, turned out to be uh, a Republican, the Republican in that race. So the GOP retained a one-seat majority in the Virginia House of Representatives. So, yes, one vote matters. And what some Republicans are willing to do to win races apparently also matters. A quick break, and we are back with... Uh, the latest update on the election mystery in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District race. 
with a U.S. House seat at stake there in now what appears to be a GOP election fraud case. And yes, another lawsuit filed in the state of Georgia. That and much more is ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journal troublemaker, all etc. etc. from bradblog.com. Uh, another election lawsuit has now been filed in the great state of Georgia. Yes, another one. This one in advance of the Tuesday runoff in two statewide races. Election officials in some Georgia counties waited too long to send out absentee ballots for the state's December 4 runoff election. According to a new federal lawsuit filed by the Georgia Democratic Party, so the deadline for returning those ballots should be extended, they argue. A spokesperson for the Secretary of State's office countered on Friday that any blame lies with Democrats because their previous lawsuits delayed certification of the general election results. Results of the November 6 election were finally certified on November 17. Now, by the way, that's not much of a delay. I mean, out here in California, we have not even certified uh, the initial election, the, the the November 6 election, until I think it's December 6. I'm sorry. This is, so they're saying, oh, we can't do this. We're late because it's your fault. It's your you tried fault. to make us count the ballots. Yeah, you tried to make sure that every vote was actually counted as cast. 65 of the state's 159 counties didn't send out absentee ballots for the runoff until this week. According to the lawsuit that was filed on Thursday, there are two statewide races on the runoff ballot, Secretary of State and a seat on the Public Service Commission, Secretary of State, to replace uh, the office held by Republican Brian Kemp, who spent the last eight years suppressing the vote in so that he could be declared the victor in the gubernatorial race about a week or so ago. So now that uh, that office is up for grabs in a runoff in uh, Georgia, which are triggered when no candidate wins more than 50 percent of the vote. The lawsuit was filed against uh, interim Secretary of State Robin Crittenden. Uh, Brian Kemp actually resigned from his seat once he declared victory after the election. So it was uh, filed against Crittenden in her official capacity as the state's top election official. A statesman, uh, a spokesman, a statement from her spokesperson <laughs> said that Crittenden and her staff worked as quickly as they could, but some counties took longer because they lacked the capacity to print their own ballots. She said all parties involved 
The secretaries of state's office, the counties and the vendors all worked as expeditiously as possible to prepare absentee ballots for the runoff. But absentee ballots must be received by Election Day in order to be counted, at least most of them, not all of them. I'll get to that in a second. The lawsuit asks a judge to order that absentee ballots postmarked by Election Day, that's December 4, and received three days later, by December 7, that those be counted. Now, this seems to make sense because 44 counties did not send out absentee ballots until November 26, and 20 more waited until November 27, according to the lawsuit. That means one week. November 27 was uh, a Tuesday. The following Tuesday is December 4. That's Election Day. So there's one week for those ballots to go out, to get received by the voters, to get voted and then get sent back and then arrive by Election Day. Not be postmarked by then, but arrive by then. So even if you get it out, you know, two, three days before the election, but the post office takes one extra day to get it there. As of now, those ballots won't be counted, even though they were clearly voted and postmarked before Election Day. And the number of people, according to this lawsuit, who could be affected here, uh, there's a lot. One hundred and twenty one thousand people submitted applications for absentee ballots in this runoff election. You'll recall the governor's race was decided by uh, much fewer votes than that. And at the same time, overseas and military absentee ballots, those are already considered valid if they're postmarked by Election Day, but they don't arrive until three days after that. So why should overseas and military uh, absentee ballots be counted more than people who are living right there in Georgia? So the lawsuit says... You know, let's treat all of the ballots the same here as long as they're postmarked by December 4. Uh, let's you know count those ballots. Officials say that, well, it will be too burdensome because they have to certify the race by December 10. What is with these rushes? Why not count ballots accurately instead of quickly? I think the answer is... Uh, Folks in states like Georgia and Florida, hello, Florida, they don't want to count every ballot. Uh, in any event, if uh, the suggested solution uh, that the Democrats have put forward is not adopted, uh, state party chair uh, has said that some Georgia citizens will lose their fundamental right to vote because their ballots will have been sent to them too late to cast a ballot that will be counted through no fault of their own. Correct. All right. One more here before I get to my uh, guest standing by momentarily. The North Carolina U.S. House 9th District election mystery now seems pretty squarely to be a GOP election fraud case. Uh, ale allegations of irregularities in and around Bladen County continued to swirl today with the North Carolina Democratic Party calling for an official hearing and a flurry of affidavits now being uh, surfacing involving absentee ballots. The allegations are behind this past week's surprise decision by the State Board of Elections, which we've been covering since the day it happened. 
to not certify the results of one single congressional race. That's in the 9th U.S. House District. That after uh, Democratic State Election Board member Josh Malcolm cited what he called, quote, unfortunate activities that he claimed has been going on for years. And after a two hour closed door session, the board decided uh, they voted nine to nothing to not certify that ninth district race. In that race, the Republican Mark Harris beat the Democrat Dan McCready reportedly by nine hundred and five votes. But there are concerns about uh, we're now beginning to figure out that this is all about absentee ballot. Apparently, absentee ballot fraud, election fraud, not by voters, but by some absentee ballot harvesting operation that was apparently going on in at least, uh, well, in Bladen County, maybe in Robeson next door, but apparently Bladen County. There's a Republican contractor at the center of these activities, a guy by the name of McCray Dowless who was paid by the Republican campaign, uh, Harris's campaign, as a contractor here. In a letter to the uh, chair of the State Board of Elections, the Democratic Party attorney, John Wallace, said, we need to delay certification. They said after, he said, after pulling the fire alarm on Tuesday, the state board cannot in good conscience certify the election three days later, as was scheduled for, uh, for today. When so much smoke, he said, continues to hang over this election. And indeed, on Friday, the board voted to hold a hearing on the evidence of tampering, vote vote tampering. And they're going to hold that hearing on or before December 21. So um, that the evidence in this case could eventually allow the board to call a new election, no matter the number of ballots in question, according to state experts. Uh, So, yeah, these midterms may not be over yet. Some of the affidavits that are showing up are kind of amazing here. For example, Detisha Montgomery said that on October 12, a woman came by her house, told her she was collecting absentee ballots. And in the affidavit, Montgomery said she voted for only two candidates, one for sheriff and the other for school board. And the woman told her uh, the others were not important. She said, I gave her the ballot and she said she'd finish it herself. She signed the ballot and she left and it was not sealed up at at any time. Another woman, Emma Shipman, said uh, someone came to her house. A woman came to her house, told her she was assigned to collect absentee ballots. She says, I filled out the ballot while she waited outside and I gave it to her. She took the ballot, put it in an envelope and never sealed it or asked me to sign it. And then she left. I thought she was legitimate, she said. Lucy Young said she received an absentee ballot even though she did not request one. She already voted early in person. The reason, uh, among the reasons they're looking at these absentee ballots and what may have happened here is that uh, in seven of the eight counties in the 9th District, the Democrat McCready won a lopsided majority of the mailed-in absentee ballots, but not in Bladen County. There, the Republican uh, Mark Harris won 61 percent, even though registered Republicans in Bladen County account for only 19 percent of the county's accepted absentee ballot. That means ballots. That means that every single unaffiliated voter 
who put in an absentee ballot voted for the Republican uh, in this county, apparently. We don't know. But, uh, boy, it's uh, and, and there's a history. This also goes back to the uh, the primary race, by the way, the Republican primary where Harris ousted the Republican incumbent Robert Pittenger. In that case, he won four hundred and thirty seven absentee ballots in Bladen to just 17 for the incumbent Robert Pittenger. Yes, Something is amiss in uh, North Carolina in the 9th District, and it is not Democratic voter fraud as Republicans pretend. Once again, it appears to be Republican election fraud. This case will continue. We will continue to follow it as uh, as it develops. But I have a feeling we're going to see another election, another midterm election in the state of North Carolina in the coming weeks. All right, quick break, and we are back with Pam Vogel of Media Matters on a completely different topic. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. No criminal charges will be filed against any of the 42 people associated with a caravan of Central American migrants who were arrested in a clash that ended with U.S. authorities firing tear gas into Mexico on Sunday in supposed response to some rocks that were thrown, according to the Associated Press. The decision not to prosecute came despite President Donald Trump's vow that the U.S. will not tolerate lawlessness and extensive preparations that were made for the caravan, including deployment of thousands of active-duty U.S. military troops to the border. Rodney Scott, chief of the Border Patrol's San Diego sector, has said that those arrested for illegal entry included 27 men, with the rest being women and children, many of whom were caught up in the tear gas attack as they ran for their lives. Customs and Border Protection, however, reportedly didn't collect enough evidence needed to build cases, including the names of arresting officers, according to a U.S. official familiar with the matter, who spoke to AP on condition of anonymity. Customs and Border Protection acknowledged that no charges were filed, but they declined to say why. Trump and his administration officials, particularly in the lead-up to the midterm elections, if not as much since then, have portrayed the caravan as a lawless, violent mob, saying there are some 600 people in the group who have a criminal history. That they know, apparently, but they don't even know which one of their officers made arrests on Sunday. Sunday's border skirmish was widely covered by corporate news outlets, not to mention pretend news outlet Fox News, of course, where it was damn near depicted as World War III, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen took to Twitter afterwards to declare the actions by the migrants to be, quote, dangerous, vowing that the perpetrators will be prosecuted. Apparently, they will not be. 
Sunday's incident occurred at the border in Tijuana, where thousands of caravan members have been arriving after fleeing poverty and violence in Central America. Many hope to seek asylum in the U.S., but may have to wait months because the U.S. government only processes about 100 of those cases a day at the San Isidro border crossing in uh, in San Diego. The fate of the 42 immigrants who were detained but not charged remains unclear, but Customs and Border Protection said that they will face deportation. A spokesman for ICE said the agency could not provide information about the immigration status of the 42 arrested without names because it doesn't track people affiliated with the caravan. Well, good thing uh, that we sent uh, (laughs) more troops to the border, keeping them away from their families over Thanksgiving. More troops than we have in Iraq at this point in order to combat this tremendous threat to American security and our very way of life threatened by this invasion, as Trump and right-wing media have been falsely describing it. Now, while Americans have sadly come to expect that sort of rhetoric, that sort of language, that sort of propaganda from fake news outlets like Fox, it's another thing when it shows up on their otherwise trusted local evening news. But sure enough, even those outlets are now echoing Donald Trump's ridiculous anti-immigrant fear-mongering to unsuspecting viewers. Thanks to the right-wing corporate ownership by broadcast behemoth Sinclair Broadcast, which uh, orders must-run pro-Trump commentaries created at their national offices to be run every day during local news broadcasts. On Monday, following the weekend skirmish at the border in San Diego, Sinclair chief political analyst and former Trump aide Boris Epstein released a new must-run segment for the company that defended the use of tear gas on families at the border and attempted to stoke fear, saying that the group of migrants is attempting to storm the border in an attempted invasion of our country. Here's a portion of that must-run editorial heard on stations, seen and heard on stations in more than half of the U.S. this week. The migrant crisis on our southern border has greatly escalated. This past weekend, the United States was forced to temporarily close a major point of entry in San Diego, California, in response to hundreds of migrants attempting to storm the U.S.-Mexico border in hopes of claiming asylum. Dozens of migrants attacked U.S. border enforcement by throwing rocks and bottles. Ultimately, American authorities had to use tear gas to stop the attacks. The fact of the matter is that this is an attempted invasion of our country, period. However, it unfortunately appears that there are many on the left who believe it is wrong to defend our country and abide by the rule of law. Stormed, attacked, an invasion on our country justifying, apparently, the use of tear gas on women and children to stop the attacks, even as no charges were filed against any of these so-called attackers, the invaders, who will be sent back to their countries. While the so-called left, he says, believe it is wrong to defend our country or even abide by the rule of law. Again, this is not produced for right-wingers tuning in to Fox News. This nonsense is airing on local television news outlets over our public airwaves, often over the objections of the local news producers and anchors who are forced to carry the content by their Sinclair corporate owners. 
In response to public criticism of that segment after being highlighted by watchdog outlet Media Matters, which shared both the video and transcript of Epstein's latest offensive commentary in their coverage, Sinclair issued what Media Matters' Pam Vogel describes as a tepid statement in response in a series of tweets. We'd like to take a moment and address some concerns regarding a commentary by Boris Epstein that was aired on Sinclair stations this week. Sinclair's Twitter account declared the opinions expressed in this segment do not reflect the views of Sinclair Broadcast Group. When Boris's segments are aired on our stations, they are clearly labeled as commentary. We also offer our stations reporting from the Beltway and beyond that are not partisan or biased in any way. If you have any concerns about any of our content, we genu- genuinely want to hear from you. And then they uh, they post a web address at wjla.com slash content dash concerns. Above all, they say we are committed to fair, unbiased journalism across our stations nationwide and are truly honored to serve our communities. Local news always comes first, they say. All right. Uh, joining us now to discuss just the latest skirmish over uh, Sinclair Broadcast Group's disturbing use of our public airwaves for must-run far-right nationalist propaganda on hundreds of local broadcast news outlets is Pam Vogel of Media Matters. Welcome back to the broadcast, Pam. Glad to be here. So Sinclair seems to recognize that maybe they went too far in their latest must-run segment but they they didn't actually apologize for it as I read that response. No, not at all. So that initial response, um, I, we call it a statement, but quite honestly, all they did was tweet it. Um, so they weren't really treating it with very much uh, care. Mm-hmm. And that that statement or series of tweets, more accurately, mm-hmm. um, it does not mention anything about the content of the segment that was even in question. Um, and you don't see any words like apology or sorry or, you know, consequences, mm-hmm. investigating, nothing like that is, is, is seen there. Um, and since then, they've actually released through a spokesperson um, a second statement that stands by the segment a little bit more mm-hmm. and kind of implies that our reporting on it was uh, mischaracterizing. Um, as you mentioned, that's clearly not the case because we provided everyone with the full video and transcript so everyone can really easily see for themselves this about 90-second clip, um, again, which most of which you played mm-hmm. just a little while ago. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, it's, it's, you, you had originally suggested uh, in response to their non-apology, non-response, I guess, that they ran on Twitter, that they seem to be sort of throwing uh, Boris Epstein, their chief political analyst, uh, who is a former Trump communications official, that they were sort of throwing him under the bus. But even that may uh, read, I think, too much into their response. And then their follow-up seems to suggest as much that, no, they're not really throwing him under the bus at all. How many of these um, commentaries does Epstein... Uh, actually produce a week for the uh, Sinclair stations around the country, and are they all must-run? They do appear to all be must-run based on our own databases that we have access to, just seeing how uh, far and widespread all of these broadcasts 
um, are around the country. And he's doing that. He's producing a new Monster and Commentary segment um, about once every weekday during the week, so Monday through Friday, about five per week. Um, some are very incendiary like this. Some are kind of boring, to be honest with you, <laughs> but are always very, very... Uh, predictably in line with whatever the Trump administration believes about whatever topic that the commentary segment's addressing. And uh, there's a third category of must-runs that are hosted by Epstein. There are additional must-runs besides his, but um, sometimes he doesn't provide commentary at all and instead uses that platform to land exclusive interviews, if you would even call them that, with Trump administration officials, including the president himself, um, he did a six-part series of segments that were excerpts from an interview with Trump right before the midterms, for example. And these interviews are, uh, I, I suppose, a big get in terms of having access, mm -hmm. but he's not asking any big questions. There's nothing hard-hitting there. It's Half the time, uh, Epstein is really just nodding along and agreeing with it, whatever his interview subjects are saying. Um, so I, I would say... Altogether, again, these segments are relatively short, um, but they're coming into your living room every single day, mm. sort of builds up some momentum. Uh, Fox News, of course, uh, and I have to put the quotes around the word news, air quotes that you can't see on the radio, but Fox News, of course, uh, made their name by pretending to be so-called fair and balanced. And, of course, I've always said fairness is one thing, balance is another. Balance essentially uh, is meant to level a playing field for uh, bad guys who don't deserve such a level playing field. But, uh, you know, they would claim that it was balance that was missing from what fo uh, folks like Fox describe as the left-wing news outlets across the station. Is there any attempt at so-called balance uh, on these Sinclair stations? In other words, I hate the, I hate the false balance uh, nonsense, but do they at least have a, a so-called uh, commentator from the left that creates must-run commentaries to balance what is offered uh, from Boris five days a week? No, not at all. So he is, his title with Sinclair is Chief Political Analyst. Um, as far as I can tell, there is no other person that has a similar title. Um, any other must-runs that I'm aware of that they're regularly requiring their news stations to air um, are not commentary in the way that his are at whatsoever. So it, there are those segments. There are some specials. Often those are also very conservative. For example, Earlier this month, um, a, a lot of Sinclair stations were airing a 30-minute special that was hosted by another former Trump official, Sebastian Gorka, mm. where he basically just fear-mongered about socialism. Um, and then they also have another regular segment that they would characterize not as commentary um, called the Terrorism Alert Desk. Those are coming out on average about every other day. And again, that's a very one-sided perspective and a very narrow and anti-Muslim view about what terrorism means. So if you combine all that together, I would say the closest we can get to balance, and something that I do think is really important to know out of fairness, is that a lot of the anchors at these local stations uh, don't want this, these commentary segments mm -hmm. to be part of their newscasts at all. And I don't want to lump them all in, so I am sure that at least some employees there are trying to do their best to provide their viewers with the facts um, when they are in charge of what's happening on the screen. 
Yeah, that's, but there's only so much that can be done. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the fact that they preempt the uh, you know the local news producers who decide what is best for their broadcast and their audience. Uh, you argue uh, over at Media Matters that there should be no reason for Sinclair to stick with Epstein in spite of all of the, uh, what you describe as unforced errors and grief that he's brought to his employers. Um, and I'm not sure it's it's brought that much grief or that these are errors at all, but uh, you note that his commentary has no natural audience, which is why probably... Uh, why uh, Sinclair has to force its stations to air these st- segments in the first place. They don't want to run them. They're forced to run them. Wh- what do you mean by he has uh, no natural audience? Well, so obviously, in, as a employee at Media Matters, mm-hmm. who is tasked with watching these segments every day, <laughs> I, I have that pleasure, and I, it's very easy to notice that nobody else is watching them on purpose. Um, obviously, that's, so, that's problematic for a number of reasons, but it's very telling, I think, that, for example, on his YouTube page where he posts all of these segments, um, on his social media, on Facebook, his Facebook page where he also posts the segments and sometimes posts other things mm-hmm. to sort of engage with his audience, those things are getting very, very minimal engagement um, and very low view numbers. It's quite startling if you look, for example, at his YouTube channel, um, you'll see most of the segments have somewhere under 100 views, including some where he was interviewing the President of the United States. Hmm. And then you can almost tell which segments I or another reporter on this beat wrote about because those are the only ones that have more than 100 views. (laughs) Um, I think that's very telling because it really shows Sinclair has to force this on people. Nobody... Uh, independently is seeking out Boris Epstein's point of view, probably because he's not very charismatic, but also because we already know what his point of view is going to be. It's going to be whatever President Trump thinks about something. Um, And in fact, he might be legally barred from criticizing the president because of the time where he worked on the Trump campaign. And and that's what I want to ask you about, actually, uh, some of the legal issues here. Now, unlike cable news stations, broadcast stations uh, who are allowed uh, licenses to our very limited public airwaves for free, uh, theoretically in exchange for serving the public over those stations, uh, they have to meet certain criteria that, again, theoretically, uh, is enforced by the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. Is there any reason to believe that the FCC would find this kind of continued, repeated, hard-right propaganda uh, forced onto local stations uh, that any of that runs afoul of licensing requirements, particularly, I mean, well, let me let, let you answer that uh, question. Is there any uh, chance that the FCC would take any action here, an FCC now controlled by the Trump administration, which clearly benefits from this? Right. Well, so theoretically, there's absolutely a chance that they would take action. And frankly, the FCC's decision to slow um, the slow roll and ultimately, essentially, more or less kill um, Sinclair's plan to acquire a bunch of new stations um, earlier this year, mm-hmm. that was certainly surprising, and we didn't expect it because the FCC, under the Trump administration, has predictably been acting, for the most part, until that time, um, in a way that directly benefits Sinclair. 
So theoretically, there is a chance that they could take some action. Um, licenses have to be renewed every uh, so often, every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the next round of license renewals for individual stations that are owned by Sinclair is not coming up until 2020, but earlier this week, the American Cable Association actually filed a petition with the FCC asking them to invoke a rule process that isn't really used very often um, to kind of force some of Sinclair's stations to go through an early and more drawn-out renewal process because there are what they would call issues about requisite character, like you were talking about um, basically having to pr- Sinclair has to prove that they still um, are fit to be operating these licenses. And primarily, I think the concern there would be more about how Sinclair um, allegedly may have misled both the FCC and the Department of Justice when they were going through the process of um, trying to acquire those stations earlier this year. But I certainly think that this can't help, especially if you're talking about uh, what it means to operate on the public airwaves and what it means to be providing news that is helping your viewers. I tend to think that a lot of these segments, if they're not actively um, attacking specific groups of people, they are certainly not providing anything new or breaking um, or any kind of sort of challenge to power, which is sort of the point of journalism. I would uh, suggest that folks, and it's often hard to tell if these stations are, in fact, Sinclair-owned stations. You have to sort of look very closely at the end of the newscast, and you might see uh, Sinclair copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group or something at the end. But I would urge uh, uh, listeners who have these stations in their uh, in their communities, and again, there's uh, almost, I think, 200 of them all across the country, um, public complaints to the station and to the FCC, those are actually reviewed uh, by law, and I think they are shared with the FCC when these licensing agreements do come up. So if you happen to notice these stations, and if you happen to notice Boris showing up with this uh, offensive nonsense on your uh, local nightly news, uh, your complaints to those stations filed via email or, or written mail and to the FCC actually do make a difference. Uh, Pam Vogel, um, you suggest that all of this controversy is ultimately hurting Sinclair more than helping them. If so, why do they keep uh, doing this? Why do they keep Epstein on and keep running these offensive pieces that apparently nobody actually wants to see? It's very confusing to me, um, and I'm not quite sure. I want to back up for one second, though, Mm -hmm. and just point out that we at at Media Matters have actually developed an online tool that can help you find the Sinclair stations that are broadcasting near you. It's at findsinclair.com, and you can search via zip codes, addresses, cities, and it'll show you what's nearby. Nice. Um, So in case that's helpful for what you were suggesting a minute Mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But back to why, why Sinclair seems to continue to want to employ Epstein, I would guess that ultimately the argument they would at least use publicly is that point about access to Trump administration officials or top Republican Party officials um, that I was discussing earlier. Because they are able to secure these exclusive, again, I want to use quotation marks here, interviews, um, they can argue that that's a public service Mm -hmm. or that it's providing their audiences with something they otherwise wouldn't have. I guess that's technically true, but again, I'm not sure that those interviews are actually very informative for anyone. Um, and then beyond that, I, 
I assume that what's really going on here is that Sinclair agrees with him. Um, like you were saying in the original statement, they seem to be trying to create some distance, and then they kind of backtracked on that since. And I would guess that's because this is sort of the point. They wouldn't have hired him in the first place if they weren't prepared to be airing commentary from someone who was so clearly aligned with the Trump camp. Um, so I think what we're just seeing is a very clear betrayal of what their motives are. Um, and we know that the people who own the Sincla- own Sinclair, the Smith family, mm-hmm. they're outspoken conservatives. They toe that, li- that anti-media line we were talking about before that Fox News also tells mm-hmm. viewers that, you know, you can't trust any other media except for them. That's a very common refrain that we hear on previous Epstein commentary segments. We've heard it from different uh, leaders at Sinclair themselves when they've had to kind of push back against criticism in the past this year, especially. So I think we're just seeing that clear alignment and the fact that there is absolutely no distance between what Epstein says on on air, between what Sinclair and their um, corporate structure is is thinking behind the scenes and probably the Trump administration itself. Yeah, there there has uh, long been this argument I've heard over and over again from the right that, oh, you know, progressive media, progressive radio and so forth, uh, that that's not on our public airwaves very much because uh, that's not what the market wants and it loses money and this and that. Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, Rupert Murdoch, I recall, uh, bought up New York Post and, you know, for 20 years he lost money on that paper. Uh, you know, right-wing uh, corporations don't seem to mind losing money if they can get their um, if they can get their politics out as they see fit, uh, even if it hurts them uh, financially. It seems like they don't care. That may be what's going on here with Sinclair. Uh, Pam Vogel of MediaMatters.org. I, I'm uh, very happy that you're willing to sit through those uh, <laughs> those Epstein uh, videos to let us know what's going on. People can find your work over at MediaMatters.org, on the Twitters at Pamela underscore Vogel. And again, as she notes, if you want to figure out which stations near you are Sinclair stations, you can go to FindSinclair.com. Pam Vogel, much appreciated. Appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast. Thank you. Okay, I got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We greatly appreciate it. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am known as The Brad Blog. And my thanks to those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves. For some reason, Sinclair hasn't syndicated us yet. I don't understand <laughs> why. Thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. We need you and we thank you. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.